Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another mini episode of Dear Prudence. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Emily Vanderwerf, the critic at large for Vox. She's also the co-creator of the fiction podcast Arden and the co-author of the book Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion to the X-Files. And now here's our first letter. So the subject here is posthumous secrets. Dear Prudence, Six months ago, my brother unexpectedly died. He has three children, two with Elise, his ex-wife, and one with Anna. Anna acted strangely during his death. She didn't come to the funeral and basically vanished overnight with her daughter to her parents' house. She hasn't really communicated with anyone in the family since. This was pretty traumatic, especially for my nephew and niece. They were very close to Anna and their sister. No one knew what happened. I tracked Anna down and demanded an explanation. I got one and wished to God I hadn't. The week before my brother died, Anna had discovered he had been having a long-term affair with Elise. She sent me evidence to confirm it. Anna told me there was no way she could have been in the same room as Elise without screaming out the truth and causing a scene. She didn't want to traumatize her stepchildren any further or cause any complications. Anna told me that she's in therapy right now, but it's going to be a while before she's strong enough to reconnect with us. She asked me not to try again. So now I have this secret sitting on my chest. Elise and the kids are over here a lot since my mother lives with me. I had always thought of Elise as a friend, and I know Anna did as well. I thought my brother was a good man. All that is gone. I don't know how to be around Elise anymore, especially when she makes speculations about Anna. I ended up breaking a glass in the sink after Elise talked about Anna having a, quote, mental breakdown and being worried about her daughter. What do I do? Confront Elise? Tell my family? What do I do about my niece and nephew? Please help me. What would you do? I have no idea. <laughs> this is the one that I read it. I was like, I don't know, um, but yeah. uh, let's let's give it a shot. Do you think it would depend on how old the kids were? Yeah, I think if these are kids in their twenties, you know, there's a way mm-hmm. to talk to them. If they're kids like who are nine and ten, then you're, yeah, you're kind. It's it's going to be really tricky, but somebody needs to have a conversation with someone. And a lot of that depends on who's old enough to be able to process that information. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the good thing here, I think is that the letter writer is not responsible for any of the kids. So it's, it's not as if anything the letter writer is going to do is necessarily going to rope the kids in. So um, given that I do not know, I mean, clearly at least some of the kids are still living with their mothers because, um, it says Elise and the kids are coming over a lot. And I feel like the letter writer would have mentioned it if they were just like 20 something. Um, so, you know, Anna has told you, don't, don't get in touch with me again. Give me time. But she didn't say, don't tell anyone about this, which even if she had, you would also, I think, uh, have a right to decide for yourself whether or not that was actually a promise that you could keep. But, um, you are not under any, um, like restriction when it comes to who you decide to talk to about this, which again is not to say like, go over to Elise's house and like shove your phone under her face and be like, look at these pictures that Anna showed me. But 
man, I, I, I sure just think you could say maybe even over text or in a phone call if you didn't feel up to making that trip in person, but just to say like, hey, Elise, I've spoken to Anna. I know about the affair. Uh, I want to continue to be there for my niece and nephew, but I need you to stop speculating about what Anna is up to right now, now that I know. Yeah. I I mean, I think talking to Elise is probably the, the best first step here. Um, and if she reacts poorly, it may be worth pulling in other people in your family whom you trust. But because this is information that directly involves Elise and because she's making these damaging assertions about Anna with family around, it is worth it to talk to her and say, you need to stop this. I know what happened. And again, if that's a text or an email, because that's an easier way to have that conversation, great. I welcome that. But I think all I think all roads here lead to talking to Elise. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a little bit more skeptical about roping other family members in just because like yeah. he died six months ago. Emotions are running high. Anna is yeah. just gone. And the potential for somebody to just really, really lose it, I think is quite high, which doesn't mean right. you can't. I just, you know, I would say that as a really last resort. It, um, it depends on how well you think you know your family, because even if you know them really well, you can't always predict how they'll react to news like this. But Emily, you have yes. said some very true things. <laughs> you sure can't. Um, sorry to bring it back around to me. But yeah, I, I think my goal in this letter writer would be to have the briefest of conversations with Elise about this. Like, I would not want to try to get into her about any of the gory details. I would not want to hear any of her attempts to justify or to even get into an argument. Like, if she tried to deny it, I would just want to say incredibly briefly. Uh, here's what I need from you. Do not mention Anna to me again. Uh, I know you two were having an affair. You and I don't need to talk about it. I want to be there for the kids, but like, this is what I need from you. And, and just leave it at that. Very simple, very brief. Um, if she attempts to try to turn that into a longer conversation or to try to make a case or anything, just be like, I don't want to know any more than I do know about it. I'm not interested in in hearing anything else. I am just trying to get through my own grief here. Just this is what I need from you. Either you can do it or you can't. And if you can't do it, you know, I'll leave the room. I'll end the conversation, whatever. Um, you know, you can set up those blockers that you need to. But yeah, I, I would say this is going to be a short conversation. This is not going to be like, how could you do this? Let's really hash it out and repair our relationship. Save that for a time when things aren't so fresh or don't do it at all. Maybe you don't want to repair the relationship. Maybe you just want her to like, be a little further away from you and that's the best you can do. Yeah. I do I do sort of wonder if there is a situation where this goes south, which it totally could, if there is someone who would be a good impartial mediator, a good impartial go-between who could perhaps find a way to talk to both parties. But I don't know the situation well enough to know who that would be, whether it's a family friend or a counselor or minister or something like yeah. that. I, I do think this is one where min, I don't think ministers are ever helpful in this sort of situation. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think ministers are great at helping people uh, right. maneuver through situations like this one. But um, I'm also biased in that department. Um, yeah. Usually it's not my goal here to like keep a story quiet. But this is one where I feel like given that there are young kids to help raise, given that he died six months ago, and given that one of the people has just removed themselves from the situation, so it's not as if you have to worry about the way that other relatives are treating Anna or anything like that, I would say that my goal in in this 
right now would be to have a quick, brief conversation with Elise and only rope in other people if you had to. Um, and if you didn't have to, not to. If you felt like later somebody who'd been incredibly close with Anna was like really going off the rails and had the really wrong idea, you know, you could maybe talk to them about it. But I just think, you know, it's been six months. You're all grieving a lot. Save it. Save it for maybe another six months from now, another year or two from now. You can have a bigger conversation about how complicated life is. I also think, I really think if you have a short conversation with Elise, it's nothing more is going to come of it after that point, because I doubt she's going to want to turn it into a thing. I I just doubt that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't want everyone in the family turning their like grief stricken attention to her and being like, you did what? (laughs) Like I imagine she, she would actually, even if she is upset at first, she will mostly be grateful that you are not looking to, to blow up her spot. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that doesn't mean by the way that like, if you keep it kind of quiet for now, that that means you're committed to keeping her secret forever. So if that idea feels really heavy, you don't have to do that. You are not under an obligation to keep this a secret forever. Um, you can certainly have the quick conversation with her now. And then if in a few months you're like, I feel miserable knowing this and not talking about it with my other relatives, you know, spread the misery around. Um, I'm often an ad, like, I sometimes do that goes really badly. And sometimes it's just about making other people suffer. But sometimes it's also just like, if you didn't seek out really upsetting news, but you found it and it happened and it's true and you want to talk about it with other people that it also affects, it's like, that's not you trying to bring other people down or like ruining their day. It's just like, this thing sucks and I had to know about it and it affects you in the same ways that it affects me. And I'd like to be able to process it with you. I don't think that that's necessarily wrong either. Sorry. And I'm sorry for the kids. That sucks. It's just really rough. It's another reason, you know, not to cheat on your partner because you might die unexpectedly and then everyone else might have to clean up your mess. And that's a shame. All right. Would you read our next letter? I would love to. The subject is delayed funeral. Dear Prudence, my dad died of Alzheimer's last December. He was cremated without a ceremony, but my mom didn't want to have a funeral close to Christmas because she worried out-of-town people wouldn't come, so she kept delaying it. I live across the country and stayed for six extra weeks while she decided. She finally set an ex- She finally set a date in early March, which we canceled the night before because of COVID concerns. I'd come home again for that, prepared a eulogy, and arranged music and a slideshow, but I understood. Now, we don't know when it can happen. Outdoor gatherings here are limited to 50, and she wants everyone who knew him to come. We were planning on spreading the ashes this week, just my brother, mom, and I, because it would have been his 80th birthday. I booked a flight home, and now she says she wants to wait until after she has a memorial. I'm finding these continued false starts exhausting and expensive. I'm also worried that we're not doing her any favors by letting her drag this out to make it perfect. At this point, it doesn't seem like it's about dad anymore, but it's about her. Should I be pushing her to do something, even if it can't be a big funeral, or just let it go? I'm inclined to look for a middle ground here, which is, I think, stop buying plane tickets until like things are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly firm, and even then wait another 24 hours. Um, But beyond not spending your money or making travel plans or extending your own visits by six weeks. If she just kind of keeps floating out different ideas, I think that's okay. Like I do think funerals are often more for the living than they are for the dead. Um, I, I, I do think that she does seem to be really, uh, you know, 
letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, so you, I don't know, you can kind of gently at some point suggest, I think it might be better to plan a funeral that wasn't ideal than to keep putting it off. But then if she's just like, no, that upsets me. I don't want to do it. I, I think that's just an opportunity to say like, okay, I love you. You can, you can wait again. Yeah. I think if these airline tickets are already purchased for when the ash, ashes scattering was going to be, uh, you know, if you, if you have the time and you feel safe enough traveling home, like I, I do wonder how much she feels like she's going through this alone and just your physical presence may help her start to get to a place where she starts to be ready to plan a memorial. But that, that assumes a lot about your financial stability, about your health, about a bunch of things that are in question right now. So if any one of those things is not in a place where you feel comfortable with it, I think, yes, just waiting until she's ready is is probably the right call and making sure she's ready 100%. Yeah, I, I, I guess, yeah, where I come down is like, I don't really think it's like harming her that she's really dragging this one out so much as just it's really hard. Um, it's hard to grieve well. And, um, you know, I, I think she will continue to have to come to terms with various losses, including the fact that like, even if she were to, you know, even if there were a vaccine tomorrow and within six weeks, we could all gather in as big of groups as we wanted. Um, she might then find that a funeral for someone who had died two years ago, uh, you know, quite late in life was not attended you know, it, it wasn't like packed to, to the rafters and that might be painful in its own way. And that might be part of why she keeps putting it off is the sense of like, well, it's been a while now and nobody might come. So yeah, I, I think just you can be patient here. You do not have to do like a hard intervention. You can absolutely recommend that she, you know, just pick something and do it because it's better to do something than nothing. But beyond that, if she's just not into the idea, I would say let it go and then just don't extend future trips by six weeks. Just say like, mom, I love you. I've got to get back. That's it. I, w- I wouldn't intervene any harder here. It's, a, it's, it's, it's hard to deal with a, a family member who's grieving that deeply that they can't, they can't see their way through it. And obviously getting through grief is a deeply personal thing and we all have our own paths through it. And our letter writer is surely grieving deeply too. Um, It's a good time to try to have as much compassion as you can muster. And Mm -hmm. I guess that's what I would say. Yeah. And the the compassion doesn't mean you have to buy a plane ticket every time she says something or has a feeling. (laughs) You can absolutely let her know like, mom, I'm still going to be making this trip home. Um, Obviously I don't want to pressure you. If you're able to do something while I'm there, I would love that. And if not, you know, that's okay. But you you can be loving and compassionate and patient and also not drop everything every time she says, I'm thinking about having his funeral next week. Um, which again, doesn't mean like you just be like, whatever, I'll believe it when I see it, mom. Like, you know, send me a picture when you scatter his ashes because I don't believe, like there's, there's a real line to be walked here. But I do think that there's a, a, a middle path that's available. Yeah, and- yeah. I mean, direct that compassion inwards as much as you direct it outwards. Right. is what I would say. And, and, right. you know, don't, don't, all the letters today really have this theme of don't necessarily feel like you have to give up something important to you because someone important to you demands it. Um, right. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good, that's a good note to shift into our next one where, let me just tell you before we go into it, by the way, I do not buy the 
person's explanation at all. <laughs> I don't know if you had the same read on the letter, but I was uh, just yeah, like, yeah. oh, she I 100% did, yeah. made that up. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one uh, applying a hermeneutics of suspicion to Dear Prudence today. <laughs> so the subject is, my friend's husband reads our text conversations. Dear Prudence, recently some close friends and I had a game night over Zoom. My friend Gabrielle's husband, Zach, made a, quote, joke about me at one point that seemed to reference something very personal I had confided about to her. I don't think he meant it maliciously, but I'd made it clear to Gabrielle that this was confidential, so I was shaken. Later, I texted her about it, and she said Zach might have seen it when when he went through her texts. Apparently, they have an open phone policy where either spouse can go through the other's phone. When I expressed my discomfort about Zach seeing the things I confided in her, she said I couldn't understand because I'd never been married or in a relationship. That's true and something I'm sensitive about. I don't take issue with them sharing each other's phones, which I maybe didn't communicate, but it's just that I had no idea he might see the things I write to her. I'm embarrassed, but I feel like my expectation wasn't unreasonable. I know Gabrielle has talked to Zach about his joke, and she later texted me to apologize that he made it. I'm hurt, but I don't know if I should accept the apology and move on or what. I mean, what apology? Like, I, I think calling whatever she texted you an apology is being very generous. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. I don't, I don't buy uh, Gabrielle's explanation for what happened here. It's very strange. Yeah, no, I mean, maybe they do sometimes go through each other's phone, but like, I would bet a hundred dollars that she just told him. Uh, and then, you know, when she got caught out, it was just like, oh no, you know, what happened is we just periodically read each other's phones. And I bet what happened was he saw the text message where you said, this is very private. Please don't share it with other people. And then thought that means I should make a joke about it. The next time we play board games together over zoom, like I don't believe it. I don't think you should believe it. And even if it were true, uh, it's, Definitely not just like bog standard to say like, oh, I'm married. So my partner reads all my text messages. And then if they make jokes about it in group dynamics, that's fun and normal. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I guess this is one of those cases where I, I feel like the letter writer can decide what level of comfort they have with, with Gabrielle still being in their lives. But like Gabrielle does not seem like a terribly good friend in this this letter. Like a, the, the the crack about you've never been in a marriage before, so you can't understand. Like that's a cruel thing to say to someone. Yeah, it's like, hey, you hurt my feelings and betrayed a confidence. And then to turn it around, it's like, yeah, but it's fine because you've never had a partner. And like, there's just like compounding shittiness with shittiness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there is this, there is this part of me that's like, well, sometimes people interpret marriage as a boundaryless space and you need to remind them that it has to have boundaries when it comes to your friendship with one partner. But this just seems like kind of a, kind of a cruel, mean friend. Yeah. Yeah. Her explanation is bogus. Mm-hmm. Um, the dig that she included about the fact that you haven't been in a relationship before was just totally cruel. Um, the fact that she like, claims to have talked to Zach about it, but then wasn't like, he says, he, like even that would have been like stupid and seventh grade style game of telephone, but that she wasn't even like, I talked to Zach about it and he says he's sorry. She's like, I talked to Zach about it. File not found. I guess I'm sorry. Is like, so the problem is he's not sorry. And the problem is that he made the joke. So 
you know, like you and Zach are not cool. He has not tried to make it right with you. He's not apologized. He has not signaled. He's not going to do that shit again. And Gabrielle is also not right with you uh, on a number of fronts. So, you know, definitely don't accept it and move on. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's also, as you said, it's not clear that Zach actually has any idea he did anything wrong. It's not clear that Gabrielle actually talked to him. Oh, but even if she didn't talk to him, he knows he fucked up. Like you don't make a joke with one of your wife's friends about something she hasn't told you directly. Even if you and your wife do have an open door conversation policy, like it is not your place to like tease one of her friends about a private concern. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, they just both seem like jerks. And I I mean, the letter writer can decide to what degree they want to have a relationship with Gabrielle still like, but I would not give Gabrielle a very long leash if you wish to keep having this friendship with her. I, I mean, sometimes people have hopes their friends can change, but this seems like a, like, like a bad friend. Yeah. Yeah. So anything up to and including talking to Zach directly and just saying like, that was a fucked up joke that you made and you should apologize to me for it is fine. You don't have to go through Gabrielle just because you know her better. Um, you can also say to Gabrielle, like, this is a shit apology. Um, and it was fucked up of you to say that this is my fault for not having had a boyfriend. Sorry, that's on me. Um, it's fucked up of you to make me feel like it's my fault for expecting a private conversation between us, uh, to remain private because you didn't tell me that you let your husband read all your text messages. That's definitely going to affect what I text you. Um, and yeah, and I, I wouldn't play board games with these people again. I realized that you call them close friends. So you might not want to, you know, just yell at them and end it there. But I, I say make it pretty serious that what they both did was fucked up, that they should apologize to you, that it was not okay. Um, and if they don't try to make it right, if they don't hear you out, if they're not genuinely apologetic, put some distance there. That's our mini episode of Dear Prudence for this week. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. As always, if you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. 